Welcome to the Maintainable Software Podcast, where we explore the art of improving existing software with seasoned practitioners who have helped organizations work past the problems often associated with technical debt and legacy code. I'm your host, Robbie Russell. On this episode, Noah Clark is currently a consulting applications developer at Merchants Bonding. Noah joins us today from Des Moines, Iowa. Noah Clark, we're so glad to have you join us on Maintainable. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So as you reflect on your experience in the industry, what do you believe are a few common characteristics of, dare I say, well-maintained software? Yeah, I think there's a lot of things that can fall into that that category, but there's a few items that sort of fall to the top of my list. And one of those items is thinking about the team dynamics. And well-maintained software is not a single individual refactoring code or having these grand ideas and these grand visions, but instead it's more about the team coming together and committing to a practice of well-maintained software. And so that's that's where I'd start that, that sort of list of well-maintained software. The other thing that I think about is how, how much trust and how much communication do you have with the business? Because as you understand the business, and as you communicate with them, you're going to start to be able to model the domain. And if you understand the domain, then your code is going to be cleaner. It's going to be easier to maintain. And so that's that's another piece of this, this conversation. And then kind of the, the last piece of it is always keeping in mind that if you aren't writing code, you don't have to maintain that code. And so finding ways of developing a deeper understanding and being able to step back and say, with a conversation with my team, with a conversation with the business, do I have to write this code? Can I solve this problem without any code at all? And having that as a approach to problem solving instead of diving deep into always solving these problems from a technical standpoint. That's interesting. You know, know, thinking about the understanding the business domain and that can result in cleaner code is that, just so folks listening can kind of wrap their head around that, is that relate to things like just using a common vocabulary and like how like, could you maybe tell us, I mean, we don't need to get too deep into the weeds of like what your particular company does necessarily, but in terms of like, what do you, what do you mean by that? Can you give me like some tangible examples for our audience there? Yeah. So I think the naming is obviously one of those examples. So when you're having a conversation with the the business and they they tell you something is is oftentimes broken or they want to change it, then you go back to your editor and you have to find that in the code. And if you can't find it easily or you can't understand it, you'll write code that goes around that instead of through it. And so th- that's a very common example of that. I think back, you know, it was actually the other day I was... Uh pairing with one of our developers who's working on a new to us client that we inherited a project from. And the client had asked for something related to something like notifications. And and this is a Ruby on Rails application. And they're like, oh, is this like flash notifications or something we're looking for? And then we searched the code base for like notifications. And it was like, oh, they've done some really weird things here. And the, and the client who we work with now has only been there for like nine months and they're newer, so they don't even really understand that, like how all the notification stuff. So we're in this fun world of like, what does this company mean by a notification? We end up determining, oh, this is like a, 
notifications that go out to their end like customers through like emails and it's like oh okay so there's this like it's really generic type of naming convention that like nobody really understands what this means like how do you want to notify them in what way and how is this supposed to show up and they're like i don't really know i just was they were told by someone else in the company we need to send a notification out or we need to post a notification on the application it's just funny how that like that process can be really challenging to kind of map you know map these things back to what the business means and especially if the developers and maybe even your primary client contact don't even really understand the business domain just yet. Yeah, that can certainly be a, be a challenge. And oftentimes when the business approaches it, they approach it from the standpoint of either what someone has told them or what the user interface informs them of. And that user interface at times doesn't match the code. And so you'll see like in uh, this is a little technical, but you'll see an H1 at the top of the page and it will say something. But then if you look in the URL in a Ruby on Rails app, the routes will be completely different. And so that's an example of what the business sees versus the, you know, the route not matching at all. And if you understand the domain, then bringing those more closely together where, where possible can help you have a little bit better conversation and lead to more well-maintained software. I always think about projects that have really cumbersome glossaries to try to translate this. And then it's always like that, well, the clients meant this, but we named it this. And then, but if you work in another department in the company, they call it that. And so they're like, there's this kind of playing glossary between like multiple different departments in an organization. And so sometimes developers think it's maybe optimal to make those somewhat generic, reusable, repurposable, like, well, we might be able to use this for something else. And that can cause confusion down the road as well. And so it's a little bit of premature optimization, maybe. Yeah, I think that certainly can be the case. You Another thing you were touching on is like finding ways to not write code. Can you think of some examples? Is that through finding other solutions, other tools, or like, what are some ways that that kind of shows up? Because in the developer world, we can build anything, right? So when shouldn't we as developers maybe build something to solve a problem? Yeah, I think that one thing to ask yourself is how often is this going to be used? How much value is this going to provide to the business? And this gets back to being able to have a conversation with them and say, okay, you're getting you know, so much business value out of this, but here's the technical cost to adding this to the application and negotiate back and forth. So is there a, a 20% solution where you get 80% of the value for 20% of the technical cost? Sometimes you can't do that. If you work in a high, highly regulated industry, there's no, there's no trade-off there that you can make. You have to follow those regulations as an example. But if you're not in a highly regulated industry, then those conversations can be had. And so that that's... That's sort of where I go in these conversations is what is the real business value? And oftentimes you get this situation where they come to you with a solution and you have to dig and dig and dig and realize what the problem is. And sometimes the problem is that the software is broken, but their solution is to build a workaround to the broken software. And so if I fix the software that I wrote five years ago, I no longer have to write new software 
as a workaround, but that requires a lot of understanding, digging deeply into their process, having the time and the energy to engage with them. And so that's, that's something that we don't always have the opportunity to do. Sometimes you, you have to do a, a quick hit, right? You have to get in there, solve the problem. But when you get the chance to, I think it's worth taking that time to really dig into the business, understand the domain and understand those problems. How do you go about weighing that up when you think you might have the time or you're, or you're concerned that you don't have the time? Is that kind of just based on a case-by-case basis or are you do you feel like you're able to come up with some workflows as a team? You know, one of the things you mentioned earlier is like how, you know, it's important to have a team that can fostering trust with the business and amongst each other and committing to working in a certain style. How do you how does your team go about navigating that in a cohesive way? So I think the understanding who on the team is an expert in that area or who has more knowledge in that area because we can't all be experts in all areas of the domain. So if I encounter a problem that doesn't necessarily uh, align with uh, an area that I have a lot of deep knowledge in, I'll go to another team member and say, here's the investigation that I've done. Here's what I know. Here's what the business is telling me. Can you validate my understanding here? They might say, yeah, I know that's an issue. We've known about it for three years. Here's what we think the best approach is, and we're, we're kind of stuck. Here's how we solve that when this comes up. Other times, they're more encouraging, and they say, hey, I've wanted to solve this forever. I haven't found the time. Here's my notes on it. Here's what I know. I think that we've done some work in the past three months to make this change easier to implement, this change more possible, if you want help doing this, let's, let's figure out a way to do it for better or worse. There is an element of sort of intuition to this, that you sort of get a sense that this is a problem there. You sort of feel it in the air a little bit. Like the business is talking about this a lot. I get a lot of help desk tickets on this. There's a lot of churn in the code, those sorts of things. They, they really, are indicators that maybe we should spend more time here and focus on this area. From there, you can dig into that and decide. And in other cases, you see something once, you see something twice, you get in there, you solve the problem and you, and you move on. Do you often, as a team, do, do you catalog anything like technical debt in your software projects? Do you, do you keep like a running list or tally or is this kind of something you just all kind of carry around and it comes up when... It comes up. So I think that in general, we have this notion and it's not, it's not defined in the project on the files themselves, but we have a general notion of code ownership or areas of the business that certain people own. And so they advocate on behalf of the business for that technical debt to be paid down. And you, you say, Hey, we've been working on this project and we've wrapped it up, but three months later, six months later, here's an area that seems to be getting a lot of attention. There's a lot of concern in the business and you would advocate to address that. And so it's on each person to understand what those pain points are and continue to address those based on their own understanding of the business and, and their own needs. 
Do you do much in the way of like when you're going through, maybe I'm making an assumption, but does your team do things like pull requests and have some peer review of some sort in your projects? Yeah, absolutely. Does that tend to ever like, okay, this is good enough for now, but we should probably come back and revisit this at some point if under certain certain circumstances like this tends to be not super scalable or you might have a hunch, some intuition there, this could be maybe not the most ideal, I'm kind of air quoting ideal in the sense of like, it'll get the thing out the door now, but we might need to come back and revisit a little bit of this, but this is, I'm not going to push on that too hard right now. Yeah, I think that that happens from time to time. The particular environment that we work in, uh, scale isn't a huge concern. We don't have a ton of requests coming in. So that's not a focus area that we have to spend a lot of time. And that's just due to our specific domain and the number of customers that we have in, in that particular situation. In general, we tend to think about, does this solve the business problem? And that's at the front of our mind. And if we solve the business problem, does this lay a foundational layer for the future, for building out what they believe their next steps are? Can we build on top of this relatively straightforward in a relatively straightforward way? Can we extend this or is this a, a dead end? So oftentimes we're focused on a lot of automation for our internal employees. And so if I build this out and automation ends here because it requires some manual intervention and this process is always going to require that manual intervention, that's not a good solution because I need to say in three years from now, we don't want an employee to ever touch this process. So those are the types of things that we're thinking about as we're building software beyond just what you would think about at any software shop as far as what good software might look like. Nice. Another thing I know that, you know, I was looking forward to digging into with you is I know that, you know, just in our preparations for this conversation, you had mentioned that best practices can get you in trouble. In particular, I think you, you had mentioned like dry as like a principle. And, and for those that might not know what that means, it's uh, don't repeat yourself. It's pretty popular is that an acronym um to use you know in in our in our in our circles and stuff like that but yeah what what is what's your take on that yeah so that specific example i was working on a project and we were doing typical work and we saw these two pieces of code and they they looked the exact same and back to this intuition piece i i looked at it and it, it didn't feel right to merge those two pieces together, but I couldn't articulate why. And, and so we merged them together. And then as the months and now a couple years later go by, I can see that they actually were two separate domain concepts. If you look at the Wikipedia article on dry, the technical definition of it is something like every piece of information should have an unambiguous single source. And so maybe we missed the mark with that because these two domain concepts did not have this unambiguous single source. But that's that's what I mean by best practices can get you in trouble is that 
if you sort of do blog post driven development where you read a blog post and then try to implement it, you can get in trouble that way. There is also a, a phase in our organization where we tried to implement just more classes are better. We are breaking things down. And there's a lot of value in having small, single responsibility classes. However, if you just use them all as junk drawers, a bunch of junk drawers in your house doesn't do you a lot of good. And so the idea of these small classes with 100 lines or 200 lines as a goal, that's great. But you have to map that to the business. You have to map that to the domain and it has to align from a developer all the way through with business concepts, business processes, and and then the business can, they shouldn't be reading the code to understand it, but the, the words in your code should sort of map and make sense to them. And if you're making up all these ideas just to create classes, class names, because you need a bunch of them, that can get you in trouble because when you go back in there uh, four or five years later and none of your class names map to how the business describes their process, these best practices, they didn't get you anything. There's an, it's very expensive to, to track through all this misdirection in the, in the end. Specifically thinking around that, you know, lots of classes are you referring to things like service objects or anything or just classes where you would have a couple of methods in it or something or yeah that that's a good way to think about it is a lot of service objects and you, so you have your typical active record object and then passing that into a service object that's doing some sort of transformation and then also we had other objects that would add validations so you'd pass it in and check it add these validations then pass it back out and so doing doing things like that yeah, it's always interesting to see how that stuff starts to scale down the road. And have you had many people come and go from your projects over the years and like, you know, like any sort of turnover within like a team and like people, what sorts of things you find to be challenging for people joining your team if in, in those types of scenarios and making sense of everything? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. I think that increasingly I have changed how I think about that. Because as you have all these smaller classes and you introduce things like decorators and service objects and this misdirection, it gets harder to onboard people when that misdirection doesn't map to the domain because they're in those meetings with the business. The business is telling them, here's how it works, or at least here's how I believe it works. And then they go to the code and the code, it's like reading a completely different book. It's like you watch the movie and then you go and read the book and the book and the movie, they're not even in the same genre, right? And so that's the experience that, that a new developer has if you don't match up the domain in the business with the objects. And so I don't, I've never worked in an environment like this, but just thinking through this, I'm leaning more and more towards following sort of this rails way, this MVC pattern, and then using concerns and mix-ins into the objects and making those concerns match the domain as opposed to 
service objects and decorators or view components. And I haven't really played around with this in a production environment. So I don't really know how that will shake out, but that's where mentally I go as I've seen other developers work with our own code base. Hi there. We hope you're enjoying this week's episode of Maintainable. While you've been listening, has anyone crossed your mind who might be looking for help with their Ruby on Rails application? Planet Argon, the producer of Maintainable Podcast, would love to meet them. In fact, we've got a pretty sweet referral bonus program set up. If you send someone our way and they sign up for Planet Argon services, we'll give them a $1,000 discount. And your reward? We'll send you $1,000 just for connecting us to the right person. Sounds like a win-win for everyone. Head on over to planetargon.com forward slash referrals for more info. That's planetargon.com forward slash referrals. All right, let's get back to this week's episode. Switch topics a little bit and move, talk a little bit more around around technical debt. And you mentioned that it's kind of like this intuition thing that different areas, different people on your team might have some more knowledge or ownership over an area of your code bases or software projects. You know, like, do you feel like you're like, what do you currently? How would you describe technical debt? I'll just start with that, but then and then, do you feel like your take on what technical debt is has evolved over the years in your career? So I don't think I've ever used the term technical debt, to be honest. I Early on in my career, I noticed two problems with it. Uh, the first problem was that as developers, we would use it sort of as an excuse. And so we'd say, I'm going to make a tech debt card. And that means we're not going to go through the bad code. We're going to go around it. And my preference is to go through the bad code, understand it, and refactor it because I'm never going to understand that code better than the moment that I'm working on features and functionality for that code. So that that language around tech debt always felt like it was kind of getting off the hook. And then the other piece of tech debt that bothered me was the tech part of it, which is this idea that the technologists have to pay the debt down. And this goes back to this conversation with the business is that if I call something tech debt, it's my responsibility to pay it down. But instead, it's an organizational debt. So we made a decision. We we took a risk. We made a bet that if we implement this feature in this way, then we are going to get some payoff for it. And whether we're right or wrong, we took that that risk, that additional debt on. And now we we're, we're where we're at, regardless of of whether we were right or wrong. And now we have to talk about how we're going to to de-risk basically and remove whatever's going to stand in the way of this future functionality that we want. And if we implemented some functionality and it's a business dead end, then it doesn't really matter. Maybe we remove the code, maybe it's a one-off process and we don't need to refactor it. But if we're going to build the future of the company or a part of the company on it, now we're going to work together and the next couple cycles that we do, maybe we're not going to deliver as much business features and functionality and we're going to focus a little more on the refactoring. 
And so that's, that's how I think about tech debt. I, I don't call it that because I don't think it's all that useful of a term. Now, there is a sort of other bucket, which is dependencies, Rails upgrades, database upgrades. They're sort of this other category that you might call tech debt. And the way that we address that is a few times a year, the whole team spends a week focusing on that and we'll have a specific goal. So it'll be a Rails upgrade. It'll be removing jQuery from the ecosystem. It will be moving our uh, background jobs to Sidekick. And that'll be a whole team effort to really focus on that that particular goal. And we've identified that typically as a barrier to delivering more business value. And we just take that week and we take ownership of that and deliver that at the end. When you think about organizational debt, have you ever been in scenarios where you're working on things and I don't know if you get into like estimates and points or anything like that with your, within your team and talking with, you know, I'm air quoting the business people there who are like, Hey, we want to do these things and you know, we need this to happen. And then you're like, well, we got to this point. This is what we can get done. Cause there is just like a, a non-movable due date of some sort, like whether that's, we have something landing, this needs to be whatever we can get done by then. So it's not that it's like things are unfinished necessarily. You got something out the door, but you had to maybe make some trade-offs. And so maybe there's more work to be done on it, or you're going to have to potentially come back and like revisit the architecture a little bit post release of whatever that, you know, those changes were updates and the think describing that as organizational debt. Have you ever been in a scenario where like, because of the development team, maybe underestimated the effort involved that it was there kind of like, it was kind of like more on the software team. Like, well, we learned from that, but then they were going to, you know, maybe we had to cut some corners to get some things done, trade-offs, but the, or the other organiz- like the other department or the business people again are you know, like, well, I didn't know because you didn't tell me that we were going to bring on this uh, the organizational debt, as your team might call it. Yeah, that's not really a situation that I've found myself in. I think that as an organization, the technology team and the, the business folks, we work really well together. We communicate and we just it, and I think a key part of that is transparency and staying in front of it. And so making sure that as soon as you know that something's going to cause a disruption, you start communicating, you start talking about that. We work in six-week cycles, so it's not you get to the end of the six weeks and you say, oh, we missed the mark. Week two, maybe even the beginning of week one, you start to see the writing on the wall. You start to see how things are shaping up. And at that point, you, you start to communicate those things and then you, you start to talk about trade-offs. And so we thought we were going to get six things done in these, this six-week cycle. Well, we're only going to get four done. Which four do you want? And because of the way that we work and people tend to own domain areas, we're able to provide solutions that say, these four are probably the most important. Maybe we can do half of this one and half of this other one, and you're going to get 80% of the value. And here's how that process might look for you. Because it's not just deliver the software and you're done. It's helping them shape their process, helping them understand the implications of, if I change my process, 
here's what my training looks like. If I change my process, here's, here's how this is going to impact the whole organization. Does your team, like when you, you mentioned you do these uh, one-week cycles every, you know, throughout the year, do you do, do that often within your six-week cycles as well at all? Like, but do you just kind of save any sort of refactoring behind-the-scenes type tasks for later? Or do you plan for some of that because you need to make co-changes to satisfy some new feature requirement or something? So generally the way it works is we have a six-week features and functionality cycle a two-week cool-down where each developer is given two weeks to focus on whatever they think is the most important. It's completely at their discretion. So there are developers that choose to spend their time on things that we would typically call tech debt, and they will do upgrades in that period of time. Other developers spend that time learning and growing, exploring gems or learning about Rails. Other developers spend that time shaping the future projects that we're going to work on or wrapping up help desk tickets or whatever it looks like. And then we have a week after that, which is focused on the rails upgrades, conversion to sidekick, whatever that looks like. And then we kick off that cycle again. Nice. During these six week cycles, do you have certain team members that are that are kind of designated to be more in a, for reactive type work? And I say like, you mentioned help desk, assuming that there's might be like little bugs or weird little things that pop up or do those, those people kind of divvying their time up between working on features and functionality changes or, or do you kind of segment off certain people to do that type of work? No, we don't segment anyone off. Uh, we have a round robin of folks that get assigned help desk tickets. Our help desk ticketing staff knows that certain people have a little bit more expertise in certain areas. So it's not a true random round robin, but generally everyone gets roughly the same amount of tickets in a given week or two week period. And we we don't have a lot of defects. So it's not too, it doesn't interrupt us too much in, in the actual focus on the features and functionality work. And generally the defects that do come in, the helpless tickets that do come in are tied to deploys or changes in the last few weeks. So it's it's a continuation of that conversation with the business as opposed to, oh, this thing that changed three years ago or this random thing that is a complete contextual shift. That makes sense. Does your team track any sort of data metrics in terms of like the throughput of like the software develop, develop delivery cycle? No, we don't. We don't use points. We don't track throughput. Again, it's kind of an intuition sort of thing of, is the business happy? Are they, are they excited about the work that we're doing? When I first started, we did use a Pivotal Tracker, and we used points and estimates, and then we didn't see a lot of value in that. We didn't see there was a lot of value in having this idea that you're going to do 43 points this this week and next week you're going to do 43 points. You're going to get done what you're going to get done and things are either important or they're not. And you should work on the important things and not work on the unimportant things and basically design your process around doing the things that matter. It doesn't really matter how many points they are. Just do the important stuff. I find that fascinating and it sounds like a healthy culture in that there's a lot of 
communication and open transparency and you're relying a lot, maybe somewhat on intuition. I'm, I'm always curious, like in those types of scenarios, how the organization has confidence or feels the need. I mean, emphasizing the word feels there, the need to, to hire more engineers for the team. Like where is, how do you know we're slowing down compared to what, you know, or we have capacity constraints, like, how does a team know that when they've got nothing to kind of measure that towards except for intuition? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. There is a, a developer on the team that has come from a metrics-based background, and he advocates for a more metrics-based background. So the, the team definitely is not monolithic in all of their thoughts. And so I don't have a great answer to that, to be honest. It's, it's, it's based on feel. And so it's do people on the team get to do the things that they want to do in a given week? Obviously we have to do some things that we don't, we don't want to do, but are we getting to spend the time focused on the things that we want to do more often than not? And then we would ask ourselves, well, why is that? Is it because some cycles you, you might have a bad cycle that doesn't go well. You end up spending a lot of time, doing things that maybe don't align with what you want to do. But if, if you're, if you have a three month window where you're not able to focus on the things that you enjoy, that's a problem for the team. And we'd have to talk about that and talk about why, why is that happening? Are we not communicating? Are we understaffed? What's going on with that? And, and we'd work to resolve that. And essentially what we've done over the last 10 years is we've changed our process, you know, every say two years, every three years, it's, it's kind of a gradual process change, but then at times we blow everything up because it's not working for the team. And so we would start communicating and say, we're missing key elements here. We're missing something. Let's, let's figure out what that is and institute ceremonies or institute some process that gets us back to where we feel like we're really connecting as a team. We're really communicating. If that's not working, then I guess we'd have to dig into that and see, is it because we don't have the staff or, or whatever's going on? Are there some ceremonies that you've, your team has dabbled in that you found to be effective for a period of time, but then no longer felt useful anymore? And how did your team come about discussing that and, and proposing making a change? I think that one of the one of the great things about the team is that we have a lot of flexibility and a lot of freedom. So even within the six week cycle, we're given flexibility and freedom on how we run those. So if you're a project leader, you can have stand ups every day. You can have stand ups twice a week. You can do things in a in a few different ways and that is is amazing and it's great however it also leads to situations where you sort of get to pick and choose it's like being at a buffet and that can be overwhelming and oftentimes i i think this is sort of the opposite of your question but things will be going really well it's sort of like tracking your macros or tracking your calories right your weight's going down or going up whatever your goal is and you say i don't need to do that anymore because I got this. And then you abandon the thing that's working 
because it feels like it's extra work. And that is what happens more often than not is when we really get into a groove or really working well, we stop doing the things that make us work well because it feels like extra work, but that's actually the thing that is delivering the value. And so whether that's retros or other, or even uh, regular standups, we'll have less of those occasionally on projects. And then we'll get to the end of the project or halfway through the project. And why why aren't things clicking? Why isn't this quite working? How we, how it has in the past. It's like, Oh, we've abandoned these rituals. We've abandoned these ceremonies of, uh, of how we work. And then, you know, the next cycle we, we kick off and then we, we recommit to that. Pairing is an example of that. Mobbing is an example of that where, where sometimes we'll, we'll get away from doing that as regularly as, as we typically do. Is your organization one that was in the a shared like location pre-pandemic and then has been remote and then have you gone back into the office at this point? Or how has that evolved for you folks? Yeah, we were uh, 100% in the office. And then obviously the pandemic hit and we left the office. And now we are a hybrid work environment. We have remote employees that are 100% remote. And so we're figuring that out. We're working through that right now, but that's kind of the situation on the ground. I think almost every company probably has some variation of that right now. So it's not, it's unique in that everybody's trying to figure it out at the same time. And we can't all, you know, as you said, blog driven development or blog driven remote hybrid working really, it's complicated. And so I'm curious, like have you seen that there were certain ceremonies or things you would do that worked really well when you're on the office together and face to face or what have you, that remote has been a little bit more challenging. Now are we going maybe in a hybrid space? You're kind of like as a team trying to navigate like, well, that seems to work better in some ways, or are you leaning more on asynchronous or I don't expect you to have all the answers for the, like how the best do this, but like what sorts of things are you seeing that's working or things you hope to be figuring out in the near future? Yeah. The one item that works really well in an office is sort of this serendipity. So this idea that I'm sitting within earshot of someone else and someone comes down and talks to them about a problem. And then I say, Oh, I just merged something into production. I bet that's on me or something like that. Right. And that is gone with the new world that we live in where you're not going to overhear that. And so moving to pre pandemic, we had Slack, but if you looked at the Slack, the Slack statistics, most of the Slack conversations were private. So moving those Slack conversations from private to public, and it's not that they couldn't be public. There's no, no one was saying anything that, that was secret or anything like that. It was just to cut down on the distractions. And so that it was, I'm asking you about this specific pull request. I'm asking you about this error that I saw in the production log, but now we need to ask about those errors in a more public forum because someone's working from home today or someone's working remotely and they actually have the keys to unlock that problem. And so that's a transformation that we've made and moving in that more 
public forum. Has your team discussed that, or has it just been something that you've kind of modeled or seen just kind of happen naturally? I've had some struggles with that in some ways, too. A very similar thing where sometimes people might ping me on, like, DM over Slack, and then I've had to get a good habit of being like, oh, let's move. Can you re-ask this question in the, you know, the channel related to that particular project? So other, I may, not, may or may not be able to answer the question, but let's have this happen in a more open space so someone else can, A, maybe inject if they have some information. Um, you don't have to, like, at channel or at hear it, but also if we need to search for this in the future this conversation is completely private, right? And so like, it won't help our future self. We're like, I feel like we talked about this and it only shows up in my own personal Slack DM history. That's not going to be helpful to the rest of the team. Yeah, we've talked about it a little bit, but the change is sort of necessitated because you're not going to get a solution to your problem if you don't. Obviously, during the pandemic, we weren't all in the same office at all. So that caused that change as well. It's something we could certainly be better at. Old habits, you know, die hard. I I have coworkers that I worked with for for eight years, and so, you know, or longer even. But they're gonna message me, you know, because that's what they've always done for the last eight years. They have a particular problem. I have a particular problem, and they're always the person I go to. So that's a challenge in and of itself as well. And so that's something I try to be mindful of. Of is this really something that I need to message an individual about or can I put it in a, in a broader context and, and sort of try to be a role model in that way? We'll be back with our interview with Noah in just a moment. Hi, it's me, Robbie. I just wanted to take a quick moment to say thank you for making time to listen to the Maintainable Software Podcast. If you're finding these conversations valuable, please consider sharing a link amongst your peers on social media and or writing a review on Apple Podcasts to help spread the word. Also, is there someone that you think I should be interviewing on Maintainable? Shoot me an email to Robbie with a Y at maintainable.fm and state your case. And now, let's get back to our interview with Noah Clark. You mentioned that your team has like on and off been consistent or maybe less consistent at times to or abandoned like mobbing or pair programming on a more regular basis. When does your team decide that it's necessary or useful to pair? Or do you plan that stuff out ahead of time? Or is it only, I talked to some people where some of their pairing tends to be more of like a, if something comes up in a standup and someone's blocked, I'm like, oh, I'll help you with that. Or like, then I'll pair with you. But rather, do you do that on things that are more like, let's take this ticket card, whatever, feature and like let's just start where let's just start the conversation from square one how are we going to approach this as a pair pairing exercise i think that there's a few different answers like i said earlier each project is ran by a project leader and it's at their complete discretion how they want to lead that so there's not a general 100 percent rule that applies across every single project with that said however i think that Essentially, every single example you gave, you could find within a six-week cycle somewhere across our teams. When it comes to the infrastructure week that we do, that's virtually all mobbing. We'll divide into two teams, and we'll split our applications into two different groups, and one group will work on a Rails upgrade in this list, another one will work on this list, 
and we'll just mob the whole time for that. Another approach that works really well in a lot of situations is we'll actually schedule pairing or mobbing sessions and do that a morning and an afternoon uh, session or just an afternoon session. And I've done that over six week cycles and that's worked great as well. And then other times it's more like what you've talked about, more informal. I'm blocked. I have a help desk ticket. I don't know what to do next and, and doing some of that as well. That's awesome. Do you uh, have any go-to technologies or tools that you use for doing pairing and, and find that to be really effective in, in this hybrid world? Not that you probably don't already have installed on your computer. We pretty much just fall back to Zoom and and that that works well enough for us. Obviously, it can be a little bit challenging if you don't have a second monitor and it can also there is some latency issues with that. If there's a bunch of stuff scrolling on the screen, that can be a challenge as well. But generally, it, it works OK. That's cool. We started going down and play. I don't know if you've had a chance to play with Tuple or not yet, um, but it's, that's been pretty effective for us to definitely pretty efficient and very little latency. This isn't a plug for Tuple, but uh, just, well, actually it is. I'm not, but they're not a paid advertiser. But Ben, if you're listening, you, I'm, I'm open to having that conversation with you. So another thing I wanted to quickly dig into with you, uh, Noah, is that, you know, I know that, you know, thinking about test coverage as an, in an application do you, does every engineer that you've ever hired already have extensive experience writing automated tests or have you brought people in and, and kind of needed to work work with them on that? And how do you help, what are some of the ways you've helped communicate and seen the value in that in writing tests and not see it as like an extra thing? Or maybe you do think of it as an extra thing, but where, where do you kind of fall on that? Yeah, I don't think of it as an extra thing, but... I would say that the vast majority of new folks on my team see it as an extra thing. That that's, I write the code, I get it working, and now I have this additional thing that I have to do or else it never gets to production. I think that it's really challenging to communicate the value in a robust, reliable test suite until you trust it. Because with a robust, reliable test suite, I, I have no, no actual metrics on this, but I would guess that I'm three or five times faster with certain classes of changes because I can make that change on the back end. And this is maybe a bad habit, but I won't open it up in a browser and check it. I, I trust my test suite 100%. I will push that. If it's a small enough change, I will push that all the way to production and completely rely on my test suite without even checking it in a browser. And that level of trust in that system, I can't put a dollar value on. I can't put a value on that. That's, that's an amazing feeling to, to have that. And when you're a new developer coming in, even if you have a ton of experience, you don't know how much to trust that suite. And so you've got to work through that. You've got to build that, that trust yourself. And there, and, and I know there's parts of the test suite. I, I don't trust it as much as other parts of the test suite too. And so you, you build a little bit of an intuition of, 
I don't feel so great about this change. Like everything's passing, but I want to take a second look at this. And maybe I want to take a third look at it on staging even with some real data too. And so that that's what makes it really hard to communicate the value of testing because it requires that trust in that system to start with. And once that trust is there, then you can start to see the value in it. And then you're willing to pay the cost. But we, we get it backwards because we ask them to pay the cost up front before they have the value there. And so what I try to do is pair with them and then find situations where there's a lot of value and a small cost to writing those tests. And oftentimes that's with a regression test. They don't understand the help desk ticket. They don't understand what's going on. Let's let's write a test. Let's use the test as an exploratory device and see how quickly we can understand the problem. And once we understand the problem and we have a test, we're done writing the test. Now we just have to fix the code and your work's done. We push it and we're good to go. And so that's a, that's a good starting point for someone who's suspicious of testing or hasn't built the confidence in the suite that they're working on. I think that's um, some really good advice there. It's it's always interesting going through, especially when you bring someone new into your team or even working with the junior developer or somehow, something and reproducing a bug or some sort of issue in a defect in your through a test that you didn't already have something covering that scenario. It's like is I love that moment of being like, look, we we can do it. We didn't actually go. We need to open up the browser, click through, and try to navigate. Like we can reproduce this. How do we fix this now? Do you find that there's scenarios where you do this? Like, do you leave all tests or do you have, does your team have a way of like knowing when we should probably, we can probably get rid of these. These aren't really providing a lot of value and it's starting to slow things down. Yeah, there, there were a lot of tests in our test suite a few years ago that essentially said it works and it would instantiate an object. And in some cases, those tests, there were hundreds of other tests that were obviously instantiating other objects. So we removed those. Someone wrote those because they were doing TDD and they wanted a test that would turn red right away. And so that's what was driving that. And so I think that that if you're doing TDD, you might be writing some tests that you can then get rid of. and, And that's a part of the process is thinking about what is this value of this test really giving me? And is it worth the trade-off of doing that? Another example of this is I was working on a bug that I found and I fixed it with some meta programming. And when I fixed it, it caused a bunch of, of data to be basically console spew when you ran the tests. And I went to another developer on the team and I said, hey, this output in the test that's coming from internal rails, it looks like errors. If another developer runs this, they're going to see this and they're going to think they're encountering an error, but it's not. And so we talked about the value of that test. And he said, I don't think there's a lot of value in actually having this test because you have some other integration tests over here that are actually testing it and it's not generating that. So maybe we can delete this. And so that's another approach is 
you have to have test coverage somewhere. Ideally, you would have it closer to wherever your team expects it to be. But in cases like that, you can be a little bit more creative and have that a little further away. But the trade-off, obviously, is that in an integration test, you're going to have that failure over there. And you're going to have to trace it all the way back. You know, that I think this ties back to one of the things you mentioned earlier about, you know, following best practices. And there is a certain element in some communities where test coverage as a metric is like seen as the thing to be focused on. Like the higher, the better the ratio of code to test coverage, the better, more secure, stable the platform is going to be. And but also, there's trade-offs there where things can start to slow down. You know, you know, you just have a lot of test code that becomes really difficult to maintain, maintain itself, right? And so that's it's an interesting thing to like for teams to navigate, feel comfortable to remove things that are not seemingly valuable or as valuable. It doesn't mean like any test is not valuable, but is it valuable enough to keep keep around and kind of navigating that as a team is important to have those conversations for sure. Right. That's that's interesting. I have no idea what our test coverage is as a percentage. I've never looked at it. For me, I'm very, as you might imagine, more focused on this intuitive feeling. And obviously there's trade-offs with this approach, but if I have a low defect rate and I have this sense that I can push stuff to production without opening up the browser, my tests are doing their job. And so I'm not as concerned about whatever percentage that is. I, I assume it's fairly high. I, I could be wrong, but but that that's sort of my approach to that. That the way I think about that is I don't write tests to get a high score on some metric. I write tests because I want to prevent defects and I want to be able to work quickly. And so if I'm if I'm hitting that, then I'm not as concerned about whatever that coverage percentage is. It's interesting. The uh, does your team through like a PR process kind of maybe not require, but strongly encourage there to be tests along for the ride, or where your tests is that a conversation that you have as a team, like in the PR or if you do PRs? Yeah, we do PRs. If you put up code that did not have a test. I would say 97% of the time, someone is going to say, where is your test? And then you can talk about, I tried to test this and here's what I tried. I wrote a test and I don't think there's any value in that. And Or you could say, I looked at this other pull request that did something similar and they didn't test this. And so I'm following that pattern, whatever it is. But you would have to justify not having a test. Yeah, thanks for digging into that with me. I'm, I'm always kind of curious to see how teams are navigating that. And especially, you know, not good or bad that you don't know your te- code to test ratio. But it, it sounds like you obviously have confidence in your tests. You see the value in having tests as a team. But the metric itself is not like the important thing that really matters at the end of the day. But you probably have a probably healthy test suite there. Couple of quick last questions for you. Is there a non-software development book, non-technical book that you find yourself recommending it appears? Yeah, there's there's actually two that I recommend. Uh, and they're they're very tend to be kind of soft books. Uh, one is The Five Love Languages. And I recommend that to peers because I think it's important to understand that the impact that we want to have on other people isn't always the impact that we're having. And so this obviously talks about 
typically romantic relationships, but you can imagine how if you're on a team and you're working with someone and you are, maybe you're promoting them or you're giving them raises and they feel unappreciated and you say, why? It's, they might say, well, it's because you never tell me. And so it's, it's this idea that maybe they need words of affirmation instead of like, maybe this is acts of service if you translate it into the five love languages book. And obviously, you know, there's five of them, but th that's a brief example of, of how I think about that in the workplace. And obviously that impacts the, your, your home life as well. And, and that, that does trickle into the work that you do. And the other one that I, that I recommend often is as software developers, we are incredibly fortunate to be paid what we are paid. And I think it's important that there's a, there's a personal finance element to that. And so I recommend a book called I Will Teach You To Be Rich. It sounds like a scam. I promise it's not. It's very practical. And for many of us in the software development field, we didn't grow up with good financial role models. And that walks you through that, that process. He also has a podcast uh, with a similar name. And the way that this directly relates to the job that we do is he is an incredible coach and studying how he talks to the guests. <laughs> yes. I'm literally holding up uh, his new book. Uh, it's the journal book. I just got this in the mail like two weeks ago. I haven't started using it yet, but um, yeah, I'm, I'm a big advocate of that, that book as well. Yeah. Uh, I, I also have his, his journal, uh, but to go back to his podcast, Folks who know that I listen to his podcast, they will say, do not remit me. And what they mean by that is I am in complaining mode. I am not looking for a solution. You're talking to me like I'm looking for a solution. Let me, let me complain. And so I've been able to use how he talks and coaches people in his podcast at work and in my own personal life. And I, I think it's a great example. And so uh, those would be my two recommendations. Excellent. Um, fun fact, uh, Ramit's, uh, their online, all of his online courses are all running on a Ruby on Rails application. That's awesome. That my company built and maintains. So That's even better. <laughs> well, cool with that. Um, so yeah, those are great, great book recommendations there. And where can listeners best follow your thoughts and ruminations about software development? Online. Yeah, they can check me out on Twitter at NoLarkNoah. Excellent. I'll definitely include links to that in the show notes for everybody. And it's been such a delight having you join us on Maintainable, Noah. Thank you so much for talking shop with us. Yeah, thank you for your time today. 